We serve a big God. Please open your Bibles to Leviticus. We're going to be in chapter 3. We've come as far as chapter 3. When we begin to look and study as God has brought us through these wonderful offerings that we've been able to see, the first three, this being the third of the three offerings, have all been voluntary offerings, right? The burnt offering, right? The grain offering, and even the peace offering that we're going to read about tonight, these offerings have all been voluntary. Out of the first five offerings that, well, there are five offerings that we're going to read about, the other two are going to be commanded. They're, they're not voluntary. So that, that's a big difference as we finish off this third voluntary offering. The other thing is the peace offering can kind of give, I think, a confused connotation in that if you hear it's a peace offering, what, what do you think that means? It means it's to make peace between what? us and God, right? Well, that's not what the peace offering is actually for. The peace offering was for those that had already, you know, through either the sin offering or through the um, burnt offering had established that right relationship. They had been forgiven. They'd repented their right and right relationship. And now what it is, is to enjoy that peace in relationship with God. Now, who, who is, uh, you know, a forerunner and not only a forerunner, but, I mean, a shadow and a type as we study our scriptures. I mean, isn't it Jesus Christ that we enter into, we say rest, we say we enter into, you know, his peace that surpasses understanding. And we talk about that. Who, you know, what's it all about? It's about the peace of Christ that we have in this relationship. This peace offering was all about that. It was to enjoy the peace with God and it wasn't something that this was like a, a one and only sacrifice. Remember, these are voluntary. And as we read about these, we're going to see the different things that are brought. These are significant. We're talking about animals of a herd. I mean, that's like you bringing your John Deere tractor. You don't have 20 of them sitting at home. You might have one. And to give up that John Deere tractor, how are you going to then take care of the farm and work the ground and everything? I mean, this was significant and it was all voluntary. And that's what I love. And it's just a natural, beautiful progression. We see, you know, like I said, Leviticus in chapter one, the burnt offering, offering of atonement, holiness, this desire for right relationship, needing that, and God making a way, again, speaking to Jesus Christ, how he made a way. And then the grain offering was an offering of thanksgiving. I mean, the very next thing that would be a right response when you realize the God of the universe just reached down and provided a way to cover your sins for us as new covenant believers, completely remove our sin. I don't know about you, but the first thing I did is say, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, because I knew I was dead in my trespasses. I knew where I was. And once I realized the God of the universe reached down and personally touched my heart. Oh, but what could I do but thank him? I didn't want to do anything else. I wouldn't know love if it wasn't for his love. He said that because of his love, we know how to love in response. For he first loved us, that we may love him. And so as we go into chapter 3 here, it seems fitting that the next thing we'd want to do is dwell in peace. And right now, peace is a big deal. Everybody's looking, we're waiting, we'll dwell in peace and safety. We know that's something that's going to be echoed in these times we're living. Specifically Israel. And oh, by the way, what is Israel saying? We have this prophecy conference this Saturday coming, right? And we're going to hear a lot about that as Israel turns around and says, we're dwelling in the, you know, peace and safety and security like we have not ever had before. And oh boy, this is amazing. But we're told, the prophets told us, 
Christ told us in Matthew chapter 24. Be ready when you begin to hear that. The time is drawing very near. So let's begin here in chapter 3, and we'll go line by line. But, but I just, I can't help but looking at Jesus through this and just seeing how it's through Jesus that, Jesus that we really, that's our meeting place. I, th- I know we know Jesus is the God man, but he is our actual meeting place. It's through Christ that we come in to meet with the Father. We couldn't tabernacle with God to get into the Holy of Holies without Jesus and his blood that would have basically covered that veil and removed it for us. Because there had to be, there was a price of admission, friends. I don't know how else to say it. And it was the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of God that bought us that admission. That's why we're blood bought. So we'll dive right in here. When his offering is a sacrifice of a peace offering, if he offers it of the herd, whether male or female, so that's a change, right? Before it was male, now we're seeing male or female. He shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. God once again telling us to give him his very best. In the bird offering, it spoke to the complete surrender of heart, giving him all of our heart. When we thought of the Thanksgiving offering or the offering where we're giving him thanks, a surrendered heart in that we were thanking him, praising him. And now we see in the peace offering here as we look at this, that once again, he's telling us when we go and we dwell, he wants to deal with the deepest part of our hearts, that true peace, that true gentleness and he's telling us that it can be without blemish. It, cannot, it can't be our second, third, or fourth best. We'll never enter into that perfect presence with God without giving him all of us completely. All of us. And he shall lay his hands on the head of his offering. Remember, this is the offerer doing this. This is not the priest. This is the man or woman bringing the sacrifice. And what are they doing? I mean, try to picture this here. Some 3,500 years or plus ago, right? They would have literally took, well, it'd be even longer than that now, but they take their hand, they're literally looking at this animal. You talk about a shadow and a type for Christ, a substitute. He was, you know, if, you ever heard of behavior modification, right? Training, right, as they say. You talk about getting people ready and right for when Christ would come, as he did for you and I, to be looking, always looking for that substitute, that blood atonement substitute. He began to teach them right in the beginning that when they would lay their hand, that they looked at this innocent animal, innocent, you know, without sin, and they would lay their hand on that animal, realizing that their sin has cost this animal's life, that that this animal is going to die and its blood is going to be shed because of sin and truthfully because of sin nature. He lays his hands on the head of his offering and to kill it at the door of the tabernacle, meaning, and Aaron's sons, the priests, so sprinkle the blood all around the altar. Now remember, God had given Aaron these beautiful garments to wear. White, remember all the garments and everything that went into that when we were going through Exodus and the pattern of the tabernacle and everything that we learned about these beautiful garments? Can you imagine him taking the blood and as he's sprinkling or he's shaking the blood, how the blood's getting all over? And what happened first, even before when Aaron and his sons were consecrated, blood was, he says, no, we, I can imagine God right away said, no, get blood on him. Why? What was blood doing? Atoning for sin. Immediately there needed to be an atonement for sin because of the sin nature within every one of us, the depravity of, of, of humanity because of original sin through Adam that we read about in Genesis chapter three. 
or in that area anyway. So he says that, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the offering, kill at the door of the tabernacle, Aaron's son, the priest, sprinkle the blood all around the altar. Then he shall offer from the sacrifice of the peace offering an offering made by fire to the Lord. The fat that covers the entrails, all the fat that is on the entrails, this is the best part. You might think of a, a nice steak when it's marbled. What is it marbled with? Fat. It's the fat that gives it taste. It's, it's wonderful, right? Now, I don't know. We're not, some of you are thinking like the grizzle fat. Like you're th- that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the best peats. When you, the best, like the baby back ribs, man, right on top of that, that layer of fat that goes right on top or, or right are you getting hungry? I'm not trying to make you hungry. But that layer, some of you are like, I'm vegetarian all of a sudden. No, but, uh, so you know, it's that layer of fat. And why was that important? Because God is saying you need to bring the best part, and it, it belongs to God. We're going to read about that in verse 17. He's going to state it again in verse 16, excuse me. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10 talks about that, how the, the, the fatness and, and then being able to enjoy and, and how it was wonderful that way. So we see the blood is offered and it's with the fat this way. And this is going to become significant because as we go on, we're going to see a repetition to this with the fat that's separated. But what he's going to tell us is it's not just any fat. He's going to go very specifically that it's going to be the fat near the internal organs. We're going to learn a lot about the anatomy of bulls and cows and sheep and you know goats and all that. And what he's saying is he's talking about the internal organs, the organs closest internal you might say, the deepest. He's interested in the things that are deep. Deep like our heart. The depth. He wants depth through this. He's showing us through this, this deepening. And this is what it's pointing to, these internal organs. Much of what we're going to see is different from the other two offerings is that at the end, the priest will be given provisions. There will be parts of this animal that will be left over. But the other thing we're going to see is this is going to become a shared meal. God himself will refer to this as food for him. That this will be food for him in a way. He's also going to refer to the priests where he's going to provide some as a provision for them. And then the offerer himself is going to get some of the meat. And then what are they going to do? Koinia. They're going to sit down and have fellowship. They're going to break bread. Acts 2.42, they're going to gather the word, right? The apostles' doctrine, breaking of bread. In fellowship, they're going to they're do what we were always intended to do. Fellowship with God in his presence. And that's what, what God's going to point out. Is it's going to be a sweet-smelling aroma to God, he's going to tell us. But, but as we look at this, the other parts, this fat part, then there's other parts that are going to be used for the sin offering. But then we're going to read on in chapter 6, and, and I think it's even in chapter 7, we're going to read on about how the other parts of the organs, like the shoulder, is going to be used as a wave offering. We're going to read about the wave offerings and how, so nothing's going to go to waste here. Even the skin, that the animal's skin, which would be worth money, it's, it's clothing, leather, what have you, that's going to be taken outside a tent, some four to five miles away, where it's going to be brought to an ash heap. And right at the ash heap, which really was darkness, speaking to darkness and death and everything like that, that's where the rest of the animal and, and that the, uh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's where we're going to read this. That's where it's going to go. And we're going to see that even that was given unto the priest that God provided. Where he guides, he provides. So as we look at this, it's going to now go into the anatomy here and, and talking about this, this fat and this shared meal. It says the two kidneys, verse 4, and the fat that is on them by the flanks and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidney, he shall remove 
Again, depth, internal organs, depth here. And Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar upon the burnt sacrifice, which is on the wood that is on the fire, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. But God is also telling us, as this was done in conjunction with a burnt offering, that, that where the altar for the burnt offering was done for atonement, we also see that same altar is where the peace offering is done. Verse 6, if his offering as a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is of the flock, whether again male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb as his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord. Again, the same as a bull or a cow that way, right? And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it before the tabernacle meeting. And Aaron's son shall sprinkle its blood all around the altar. Now, this is really interesting. What is the greatest peace offering we've received? We'd say Christ, Jesus. He's our peace offering, isn't he? Well, it's interesting. If you want to see this um, lived out, if I could say it that way in the Bible here, I'm going to um, ask you to kind of hold your finger here. But we're going to turn in a moment to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 63. And when we go there, we're going to look at Solomon's dedication of the temple where it was over 22,000 cattle, right? And over 120,000 sheep were dedicated in peace offering. There was so much that basically they didn't even have room on obviously the, the burnt altar there to bring it all on there. They had to literally go in the outer courts and now even in the outer area to just have so much meat, so much that people could come up and, and, and take of that way. So, so I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8. And um, verse uh, 63 here. And I'll, I'll back up to verse 62. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings. Notice it's plural with me. Offerings. We'll see in the rest of the reading of the, the, the Bible. And when it talks about peace offerings, it's plural. Where we're at, it's singular right now. It will always be referenced as pearls. Plural, except in the rest of the Old Testament, I believe it's in the book of Amos, is where we see it listed singularly again. Which he offered to the Lord, 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. And on that same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in the front of the house of the Lord. For there he offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings. So we see that it was even done in combination because the bronze altar... Here we see it right there. That was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings. At that time, Solomon had held a feast and Israel with him, a great assembly for the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God, seven days and seven more days. In other words, they couldn't consume all the food in seven days, so they continued the feast for another seven days, and it became a 14-day feast. Now, is this the only time we see something like this happen in the Bible? No, where's the next place? Chronicles. With who? Hezekiah. After what? After it was restored. What was restored? Well, who was Hezekiah's dad? Ahaz. He was an awful wicked king, right? You're all look okay. I mean <laughs> All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Second Chronicles. Let's look at uh, let's begin in chapter twenty nine. You got to remember when Solomon dedicated that temple, <clears throat> it would have been somewhere between 950 and 940 BC. 
Hezekiah reigns in Judah somewhere around 729 to 728 B.C. So you have, you know, I don't know, 200 and something years like that that um, are, are passed that way, um, 221 years to be specific, before they will have a peace offering again. After Solomon's temple, there will be no peace offering for 221 years because they begin, Israel begins to follow after idolatry. And it's not to Hezekiah comes because his father was so wicked. It says in verse 19 of Acts chapter 28, for the Lord brought Judah low, talking about Ahaz, the king of Israel, for he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. What he did is he basically went in, if you go back just to refresh your memories a little bit, or if you've not had the privilege yet to read Second Chronicles, what he did is he went in at that time and he looted God's house. And he took all of the different emblems and things like that, and he gave, began to sell them, and he tried to give the money to the king of Assyria looking for protection against Israel. Now, we know that nine years from that point, 722 B.C., what happens? The Assyrian invasion. Assyria comes in and destroys all of Israel, right? The 11 tribes, not Judah, the tribe of Judah, the southern, the, yeah, southern tribe like that. They don't come in, but the northern tribe is all wiped out. And if I've got my northern and southern confused, forgive me. But they're all wiped out like that, right? They're taken, they're destroyed, and they're put into basically captivity. And Assyria knew what they were doing. What they would do is when they would go in and conquer, they would take the men and often slaughter or, or kill the men, or they would take the women and have them marry so that they would basically uh, cross-populate origins that way so that they would begin to adopt that culture and therefore, they would no longer, you know, try to fight back to the culture. That would become the new culture, and it would be part of their life. And that's exactly what God didn't want them to do. If you remember, they were to be holy, set apart, single-minded, right, in procreation and everything else like that. They weren't to be married to other people. You know, they were to be married. They were, they were to be a witness for God to the other nations. So, you know, when we see Hezekiah... If you go down to chapter 29, Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah, and we can learn a little bit about him. He goes through, and he begins by cleansing the temple. That's a good start, isn't it? Go and cleanse the temple. Let's get the word, and let's start teaching the word. What's the first thing we do when we plan a church? We have a Bible study, and what comes out during the Bible study? The word of God. What are we doing? We're cleansing the hearts, the minds. In the hippie, you know, in the, the Jesus movement, Pastor Chuck Smith, what did he do? He took a lot of, you know, people that were on drugs and alcohol and, you know, many of them out of their minds, not able to even come in and study. And all he began to do is he would read five, ten chapters at a time. He wouldn't even exegete it like, you know, I do, and I go into more detail. He did later on, but initially he would go through ten. He was just washing their minds from the drugs, from the alcohol, trying to, you know, just cleanse the mind to get it right again. There were many people that, you know, they said, boy, this is person's mentally insane, this and that. But just through the washing of the, the mind, they, they, you know, they weren't insane. They just, they'd been caught up in a, uh, you know, in a, you know, drugs, rock and roll, you know, sex, the whole thing. And they were just lost like that. And when they found Christ, Christ healed and restored. That's what he always does. He heals and restores. And so that's what I love about what, you know, what we do in Calvary Chapel. We're, we're a teaching ministry. The first thing we do is pull out the Bible and we go line by line and verse by verse because there's power in the word of God. 
And we know that. And the, the word never returns void. So, you know, as we go back, and if you want to look in um, chapter 30 and right around 22, we could see that after he got, went through, he established temple worship. He then established the Passover again. He gets that all going. And then what he does is in verse 22, it says, And Hezekiah gave encouragement to the Levites who taught the good knowledge of the Lord. And they ate throughout the feast of seven days. And what does it say they do? Just like it was in the, uh, Solomon, seven days initially, it was offering peace offerings, plural, and making confession to the Lord, their God, of their fathers. So what did they do first? Before making peace offerings, they had burnt offerings. They had offerings of atonement because you have to be right with God or a sin offering before you can have peace with God that, right? You can't have peace with God if you're not in right relation. If there's enmity between you. You can't have peace with God that way. No, 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 no amount of sacrifices, as Hebrews says, no amount of sacrifices of bulls and goats and the blood can cover any of that without Jesus Christ. There's no amount of sacrifices that can, that can cover that or remove it, should I better put. So it says, offering peace offerings and making confession unto the Lord their God, their fathers. Then the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast another seven days, following just as they did before. And they kept it another seven days with gladness for, Ke for Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and 7,000 sheep. And the leaders gave to the assembly a thousand bulls. So that's a total count of 20,000 or 2,000, excuse me, and 10,000 sheep, which makes it a total of 17,000 sheep. And a great number of priests sanctified themselves. The whole assembly of Judah rejoiced. Also the priests and the Levites, all the assembly came from Israel, the sojourners who came from the land of Israel and those who dwelt in Judah. So there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since that time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this. That's so devastating to me. To not think that you could have or enjoy peace with God. 220 years that nation went without peace with God. It can happen when you take your eyes off Jesus and you put them more on national affairs. We're going to read more about that. We're going to read more about that. Go ahead and turn back to uh, Leviticus. So it was a great peace offering, and we can see that. And he said, um, I think I'm in verse 8 there somewhere. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it before the tabernacle meeting. And Aaron's son shall sprinkle its blood all around the altar. Then he shall offer from the sacrifice of the peace offering as an offering made by fire to the Lord its fat, the whole fat tail, which, by the way, is a delicacy. If you're looking at that and going, oh, I don't know about that. It's a delicacy, which he shall remove close to the backbone and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that's on the entrails, right? Now, when you look at this, you, you know, you're talking, uh, some have said that this whole fat tail could have been somewhere around 60 pounds. I mean, this was not small. This was a, a beautiful piece of meat that most people would have said, yeah, that's like the filet mignon. I want the filet mignon. It's one of the nicer cuts of meat. I'd like, you know, it's tender and everything. It's got a lot of fat in it, which makes it tender and marbled that way. Uh, but who gets the very best? It belongs to God. And there's a lot of reasons, spiritually and practically. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we get around this verse 15. 
But it says the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys he shall remove and the priest shall burn them on the altar as food, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Do you see that there? As food. It's food unto the Lord. Now that's hard for us to think, but that's exactly what it was served. It was food unto God that way. It was food unto the priest that way. And it was food unto the offerer that way. What's that spell out? Communion with God. Peace with God. Right? You see that with me? And if his offering is of a goat or a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on its head and kill it before the tabernacle meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall sprinkle its blood all around the altar. Then he shall offer from its offering as an offering made by fire to the Lord. The fat that covers the entrail and all the fat that's on the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove. And the priest shall burn them on the altar, here we see it again, as food, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma. All the fat is the Lord, right? All, all that belongs to God. Spiritually, it all belongs to God. That's the aspect. Our hearts all belong to God. The very best all belongs to God, okay? But let's talk about the practicality for a minute. So, Many of you probably hear the news or health one minute, you know, eggs are not healthy, healthy, I don't know, things go in and out, they're always saying different things like that, you know, but one thing that, you know, red meat, they say, oh, it's healthy, not healthy, but fat, like a lot of fat, they know that it, it has, you know, gristle when you think about that kind of fat, you shouldn't eat a lot of it, because it's, they say it can raise your cholesterol, they say it can cause heart attacks, they say it can have some effects like this, you know, um, heart disease, but when you also look at it, remember, we're talking thousands of years ago. One of the things that they were back then, specifically in some of the scholarly reading I was looking at, it would talk about where the tapeworms would find resident. They would actually go into the fat, fattest, fattiest part of the animal or the meat like that was where the tapeworms went. So even on a practical side, God was protecting them by telling them not to eat that. Yes, the very best, and that's our hearts, right? Our hearts should be given to God, all of our hearts. You know, whatever we have, our time, our money, our everything belongs unto the Lord. It's his. It's the very best. We get all that. It's, it's first fruits. It's all offering unto God. Our hearts being the most important of any of that, right? He wants all of us. But then he also, we also see that, wait a minute, there's, there's biblical provisions of why, practical reasons. And, and then the other one was parasites. A lot of times in the fat or in that area of the meat would attract, much like it would attract a human, you know, the fatty, it's good, you want to eat it. The parasites too would, you know, burrow in and they would consume that and they would get diseases and get sick. So God, once again, was providing for them. He was he was being a good dad. He was protecting me. He said, don't eat this. Just like he said, don't eat the blood. Why did he say don't eat the blood? Because he knows there's diseases that are carried and transmitted through blood. You're not to eat the blood like that. You're not to drink the blood. It's the same thing God, God has said that way, right? Now, I mean, I understand in our, in our technology now today, praise the Lord, they have ways to clean the blood so people that need dialysis can get the blood. Praise God for the, for the you know, medical science that way to be able to do that. God obviously gave that to some man that was, you know, 
built that somehow, right? I don't understand the technology of it, but, but he goes through and cleans it. It's not the same thing as going and picking up, and I don't want to gross you out, but taking blood and drinking it. Do you know if you do that, you will die. You can do a little bit of that and live, but if you drank large quantities of blood, you would die. It's, it's a medical fact that's proven. Don't do that. And there's a lot of reasons not to do that. One, diseases, right? God, once again, was protecting, right? He was trying to tell, don't do this. Verse 17, this shall be a perpetual statute. This isn't just something that's a good idea. He's like, hey, in you know, 2018, guess what? You eat a lot of fat and a lot of fatty meat, you're still going to be likely to get heart disease, right? You're still going to be likely to what? You know, to get high cholesterol, right? He's saying, hey, that provision hasn't changed. You're still not supposed to drink blood. It'll still kill you like it would kill you back then. There are certain things that obviously don't pass away. God's wisdom in all of this, right? So it says it's a perpetual statute throughout the generation in your dwellings. You shall eat neither fat nor blood. Now, remember, this was not, you know, this was a volunteer offering, right? This was voluntary. We have to remember that too, though. Now, as we move into chapter 4, we begin to look at really chapter 4, chapter 5. You get a sin offering and a trespass offering. And there's a significant difference between the two. First of all, trespass properly by definition really means guilt, a guilt offering. I'll go through that when I get to chapter five and why we break it down the way we do um, or why I suggest the way I'm going to break it down for you tonight. But when I look at chapter four, the sin offering, Jesus Christ was the perfect shadow and type for the sin offering. It was about right relationship. It was about when we sinned, whether we were aware that we did something wrong, whether, you know, in other words, this was not something purpose or intentional to turn around and, and willingly do something like, you know, to, dis, to disobey God. But more or less, this covers, you know, um, things that might be unintentional, if I can say it that way. In chapter four, why do I bring this out? Well, also every single sin that we see in chapter four and five is not a comprehensive list. It's not like God was making an 800 bullet point list saying all these things, don't do all this. We'll have plenty of time to go through a lot more of that in Deuteronomy and Numbers and some other places. But, but what he's trying to express here is that he wanted to provide a way for those that sin unintentionally, you know, you remember, they didn't walk around with an Old Testament back then. They didn't have something they were walking around going, oh, what did that say, right? They didn't have that. So many times they were doing things and, and may not even realize what they had done. We're going to read often where they say, I didn't know. And, and I believe this is true for many Christians today. Many Christians have grown up in churches maybe that didn't read the Bible. So maybe they didn't know what God was saying. Maybe they went to churches where they thought they were supposed to go up to a priest and confess their sins to a man. Where God said, hey, no, there's no mediator but Christ Jesus alone. Maybe they thought, well, I'm supposed to go up and, and say a rosary or worship a statue. Or pray to a statue, you know. I think our natural inclination is to look at people like that. I don't say we, but many people do. And so, well, that person's not saved. Well, not necessarily. They can have personal relationship with God. But they may not know why they're doing what they're doing. They're simply following tradition. 
right? They, they haven't taken the Bible and gone line by line through it. They haven't been through this, as, as many of you have here, where you've been going book by book and you've been learning, why do we believe what we believe? What are the foundations? And, and that's why uh, Steve and Dave, you know, I'll just have a foundations class coming up that we're teaching. And, and why do I want that? Because I want everybody here to understand why we believe what we believe. You know, if it, it'll take seven or eight years for us to cover the whole thing in the Bible. We will get through it if the Lord should tarry. And you will understand in eight years, I assure you, we'll connect dots and you'll go, oh, I understand. But, you know, we may not have eight years. We, want, we don't want to turn around and be like, well, I didn't know. So we have what we'll call systematic theology where we study specific topics. Why do we believe in water baptism? Why do we believe in communion? Why do we? Be- and that's what the foundations class is for, that they're going to be teaching to walk through the things of our faith to understand why we do and why we don't do certain things as well. Okay, so it's just important. Just we need to be Bereans as Peter. I think it was Peter. John said, study to show thyself approved. You know, we need to we need to do that. So as we go into chapter four, first of all, this is the longest account of any offering. This is two times almost twice as long uh, as any other offering, as a matter of fact. Um, the, The thing that I love about this, the sin offering was new. This was something unique and new. God did something new with Israel here. Many of the burnt offering practices, you can see other cultures at that time, even older, had done something like that. There was nothing else like the sin offering. And there was nothing else like Jesus Christ in the new covenant. You see, it's pointing to Jesus. It was training the people to begin to look to a substitution for their sin because they could not themselves remediated. They couldn't undo what they had done. They were, they were, when they sinned, even unintentionally, they were creating distance and separation between them and God. You see, there was no other way. And all that, what God had given them, and, and, and this is truly when people say, well, where's grace in the Bible? I take them right to Leviticus. I love it because it's to me, it's where the grace is introduced in Genesis. But in Leviticus, you can begin to see that even back then, as it says, Abraham was saved and it was accounted to him by what? Righteousness. Why? How did they, how was he saved? Jesus Christ wasn't on the scene yet there. I mean, of course he was in heaven. He's always existed, but he wasn't physically manifested. He hadn't gone to the cross. What happened to those Old Testament believers, right? When they died? Well, if they placed their faith in God, it was accounted to them for righteousness. They received Jesus' imputed righteousness to them. It's not a new teaching, but it's a new teaching for the world because they had never had anything else like this. No other extra biblical record exists anywhere in history for what we have in chapter 4. And it sets the foundation and the shadow for what Jesus Christ came to do to take away sin and not just cover it, but remove it past, present, and future in perpetuity for those that would place their faith and trust in him alone. It was teaching them to be looking for a savior, to be looking for a redeemer. From the very beginning, God was training them. Look for one that can take your sin away. Blood, and it had to be blood because life's in the blood. And that's why when he came in that upper room and he he had the the last supper with them and he, he began to say, and this is my blood, my broken body, and this blood, ding, 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 ding. Remember the first book you were taught in the Hebrew. You studied the book of Leviticus from a very youth in the, in the Hebrew. This is what you did. Ding, 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 ding. This is the sin offering, but not, not an offering that we see that 
that is something like that that just covers for a year. But this is my blood, the everlasting covenant, he said. Everlasting. But he had pointed to this. If you were a Jew and you were growing up and you heard this, it should have been ding, ding, ding for you. You would have, you would have been raised to look for this. You understood Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, you know, the suffering servant. You were, you were raised to understand this. Many of us grew up just Gentiles. We maybe didn't grow up with the Bible. When we learned this, it was like the light bulb went on. Wow, Lord. And maybe some of us tonight sitting here going, wow, Lord, I, did, I didn't know this was back in Leviticus, that you were already laying the foundation for me 3,500, 4,000 years later that I could look at this and see what you had already foreordained from the very beginning of time because we had something that this sin offering didn't cover. What didn't it cover? It covered your sin. But what were the two things? And I I mentioned it in the intro when we started the book of, of Leviticus. What was it? Well, no, that's, we're going to talk about that. That's presumptuous sin in Numbers chapter 15. We'll go there. No, that it certainly doesn't cover that. You'd be right, correct, 1530. We'll look at that, presumptuous sin in a moment. That's not it. What it didn't cover was sin nature, original sin. From the fall in the garden with Adam and Eve, sin was introduced into humanity. Before that, there was no original sin. When they ate of that fruit, they began to know good and evil. They became like one of us, God said, speaking to the angels or to the host that way. Or maybe, you know, to the Trinity, to himself that way. But he was expressing, they've become, not in their, but their knowledge of good and evil and, and the ability to sin that way. The ability to, to have that sin nature. And you see, no amount of sacrifice in Hebrews, as it says, no matter of sacrifice, can ever destroy that sin nature, only our kinsman redeemer. And who's that? Because some of you are looking at me. Jesus. He's the one that's our kinsman redeemer. What was a kinsman redeemer to do? If you had someone that had died, right, and you had a kinsman, a family member, you were to step up. And you were to take care of her, marry her, or take care of her, right? Jesus Christ, is he not our kinsman redeemer? Is he not the one that stood up because we couldn't and redeem us? That's what he's done. And so when I look at this, this whole chapter, chapter 4, I begin to see that this was speaking all along of Jesus Christ, but it did away with sin as a nature. The sin that was introduced because of Adam. Only Jesus Christ's work and sacrifice on the cross could do, do away with that. An annual atonement, a covering, couldn't because we still had our own righteousness, which wasn't very right. It was when we accepted Jesus Christ that spiritual transaction tra- tra- took place and whose imputed righteousness did we receive? Jesus's. It was no longer our nature. It was Jesus's imputed righteousness, which is why when he looks at us, God the Father sees Jesus Christ in us, which is why we're found blameless. Does that mean we don't, you know, still struggle with the old man, as Paul says, and we don't still have, uh, you know, the old man trying to draw, drag us down, old woman drag us down, however you like to say? Sure we do. We battle with the flesh. It's always been a battle between the spirit and the flesh. But God and what Jesus Christ did for us, it really did remove sin past, present, and future. 
it, I just, I want us to just take a, you know, Selah, right? In the Hebrew. I just want us to take a moment and think about what I just said. How much more than what these offerings could do? Now, I will also say that chapter four, remember, is this a voluntary offering? No. Right? The peace offering was voluntary. Chapter four introduced the commanded offering. It was commanded by God. You could not have right relationship with God without something to atone for sin. Again, a shadow of Christ, a type of a typology pointing to Jesus Christ. So again, no existing record, any other. Now, from the time of the law came really the most significant offering. Man was a sinner before the giving of the law, but it was the law, it was the law, that measuring stick that that revealed man's sin and depravity, right? The sin offering was offered during all the feasts, Passover, Pentecost, tabernacle, and trumpets, right? Also on Yom Kippur, right? The Day of Atonement. Every single one of those feasts, there was a sin offering to cover not only individually but corporately for sin that was done, right? Because right relationship. Now, it's contrast to the burnt sacrifice, although it was made in the same place because a burnt sacrifice was a voluntary offering. Whereas the sin offering is a commanded offering. Leviticus chapter 6 verse 25 tells us that when we get there. Now, if I could say it this way, because I know as I was studying this, I was like, how do I, what's the easiest way and simplest way to say this? Where the burnt offering leaves off, the sin offering begins. Just where the burnt offering leaves off, voluntary offering, the sin offering begins, right? If that helps, right? The burnt offering tells who Christ is, right? The sin offering tells what Christ did as we study it. In the burnt offering, Christ meets the demands of God's high and holy standard. In the sin offering, Christ meets the deep and desperate needs of man. What is our need? Redemption, right? Romans, right? We need a redeemer. We're justified. We need to be justified, right? In the sin offering, we begin to see the hatefulness of sin. God hates sin. We are to hate sin. The burnt offering was voluntary. The sin offering was commanded. The burnt offering actually ascended. If you remember, when the fire consumed the smoke, it says it ascended up to God, and it was a sweet aroma for him, right? But we see that the sin offering was to be done what? It was actually poured out. Where did it go? It went down. So there's, there's, there's differences between the two. And as we go through, hopefully it'll be a little bit more clear as we go through these. But now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, if a person sins unintentionally against any of the commands of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and does any of them, right? Not just accidental, but, you know, even if you love God, but you just blow it or something like that. Right? This isn't Numbers chapter 1530. You know, Jess kind of just mentioned that a minute ago. If you hold your finger here, look at Numbers 1530. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. It says, but the person who does anything presumptuously, that means willful sin, not accidental. It means defiancy. Right? He is a native born or a stranger. doesn't matter. That one brings reproach on the Lord and he shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment that the person shall be completely cut off. Guilt shall be upon him. There is no restoration for that. Right? For those who reject Jesus Christ, there is no restoration. When you get an attorney, eternity, it's not like, well, I got another way. 
There is no other way. It was Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. No one comes to the Father but through the Son, right? So this is, again, pointing right to that. God was saying even back here, there is no other way. So the commandment of the Lord and anything he does which not be done and does any of them. If the anointed priest, he begins with the priest here, sins, bringing guilt on the people because that's what happens when you have a pastor or an under-shepherd sin and you lead other people into sin. If you've ever seen, a, unfortunately, a church split or church division because a pastor's fallen, whether it's from adultery, right, infidelity that way, um, you know, there's other sins, uh, murder, you know, degree type one or whatever they call it, murder the first degree like that. Those are, first of all, those are capital punishments, right? In the Bible, in the Old Testament, adultery was a capital punishment, right? If you committed adultery, you were stoned, you were killed. If you committed murder, you know, first degree, you were killed like that. that. That was under the old law. However, God is saying here, if the priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, if you, and I, and I ask that you pray for, for me and pray for Lisa, I'd ask you to pray for the elders and their wives, you know, that way. Um, because I, I certainly, you know, you, you hear about pastors and under shepherds that fall and, and it wrecks, it wrecks the body. It breaks, it breaks fellowship, breaks koinia. And, and honestly, people begin to, you know, love the pastor and they love, you know, the pastor loves them. And when you do something like this, uh, it just creates such animosity and, and it just breaks it up. And, 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 you know, most of the time in Calvary Chapel, when, when I can only speak for okay, if I've always said this to the guys here, uh, to me, it's a sin that stains. The Bible, the Bible kind of describes it that way. It's a sin that stains. And what I mean by that is if there's a pastor, if, if, if somebody in the fellowship had committed adultery, I would, I would simply ask them to step down immediately. They would, they would be disqualified uh, as far as I'm concerned. And they wouldn't be able to serve in ministry ever again here. And the reason for that is not just because I don't believe God forgives their sin. I believe he does. Absolutely. And I believe he would restore right relationship with himself and the Lord if there's a repentant heart there. But the reason for this is, is because you have a wife often and you have children and the wife and children who sit right in the front as my wife sits and other, you know, my children as they're here and, and, you know, you see the other, you know, elders and their wives and children sit here. As you see that, how can you ever minister to that family, those children, that wife again, if you're keeping that person that, you know, harmed that relationship, broke their trust, how, how can you effectively minister to them? You don't think every time that person stays up in position that when he comes up to speak, even if he, even if they, you know, are, Lord, please help forgive me. You don't think there's going to be bitterness there initially? You don't think there's going to be unsettled, unresolved issues? So we just, we just put it away. We don't even allow it. So, you know, I tell the guys, anybody that's coming on the full-time ministry, look, if you commit adultery, it's, you're disqualified. Other things we can work through, the Lord, you know, forgives. And, but that's one that the sin that stains. And, and we just, you know, and I, and I say this because unfortunately it has happened in Calvary Chapel. It has happened in Calvary Chapel. We've, we've seen, uh, uh, you know, there was a pastor in Florida that was engaged in that and fell. Uh, there's been a pastor in Colorado. There's been, you know, um, in Philly, there was many years ago, there was a pastor, assistant pastor. And it's horrible. Please pray for Lisa and I. I covet your prayers. Pray to God that, that nothing ever like that happens because God has done something beautiful here in unity in this fellowship. And I never want to see that broken apart. And, and the evil one is so seductive in the way he does these things. Well, 
as we see it here, it begins with the pastor. It begins with the priest. And if there's any sin issue, he's got to deal with it. Bring in guilt on the people. Let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bull. Notice the cost here. Notice that he doesn't say you can bring two turtle doves. You can bring a pigeon. You can bring, you know, a lamb. You can bring a goat, right? There's greater accountability here, and there's a stricter judgment. There's a stricter judgment for the under-shepherd, right? Those serving, elders, under-shepherd, there's a stricter judgment when you break God's holy command because he's, he's placed you in authority. He's placed you in a position to serve, to be the chief servant. People are trusting you, and, and you're drawing people to Christ, and there's an opportunity to, you know, people could get angry at God, you know, not realizing that, you're not, you're just a man. I'm just like you. I'm, I, we're all the same. We're, we're all working faith to faith. You know what I mean? So it says, let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned a young bull without blemish as a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, lay his hand on the bull's head and kill the bull before the Lord. Again, he's the one cutting the jugular. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and bring it to the tabernacle meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord. That's what was normally done on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. They would go in and the priest, the, whole, the high priest would turn around and do this um, seven times. This is the same ritual that he would, I don't use ritual, the same thing that he would do at that time, right? And it says that he would put some of the blood, well, excuse me, back up, seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. Now, what is the veil there for? The veil guards the holy presence of God. And then he takes the blood that's doing what? What is the blood supposed to do? Atone for sin. And he puts the blood on the veil. By doing that, what is it doing? He's basically paying, if I could say, it's the admission. It's the way to be able to go through the veil. You can't go through it without the sin being removed. In this particular case, or covered, right? And, and we see that sin is an offense to God's holiness. Sin is an offense to God's holiness. You just cannot enter into that when you're in sin like that, right? God wants a repentant heart. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar. Now, you may not know, but horns, but studying prophecy. Horns signifies and always does biblically, even prophetically, as we read in the book of Revelation, power or authority. So what, what we see this here is it was a reminder that the blood and what they were doing that God had ordained, that there was authority behind it. And whose authority was it? God's. It was God's authority that was sanctifying this. It was God's authority that was adorning. He's putting his stamp on this. This is my, it's by my authority that this is being done. And by this, you have received forgiveness of sin. It's by God. It's always by God that does this. And he says that, and the priest put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle meeting. And he shall pour the remaining blood of the bull at the base of the altar and the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle meeting. He shall take from it all the fat of the bull as the sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat which is on the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys he shall remove. And it was taken from the bull of the sacrifice of the peace offering, right? We read about that already, how they take that for the peace. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of the, burnt, 
of the burnt offering, but the bull's hide and all its flesh with its head and legs and its its entrails and awful, the whole bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place that's five or six miles away. Now, we're talking about how heavy this animal is, this leather, this hide that he's carrying, five to six miles, where the ashes of the camp are, excuse me, where the ashes are poured out. That's why we said it's poured out. Remember what I said about the burnt offering? It rises up. The, the, uh, the um, sin offering is poured out, right? And burn it on wood with fire where the ashes are poured out and it shall be burned. And it's after the blood covered the sin. Now, if the whole congregation of Israel sits sins, sorry, unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done something against any of the commandments of the Lord and anything which should not be done and are guilty, when the sin which they have committed becomes known. So this is even corporately. If there's corporate sin within the fellowship, within the church here, if the body has sinned, if there's something that's going on and we're doing something, we don't realize what we're doing is sinful. When we do realize it, Right Now, we don't. We're on the new covenant. But um, Israel, when they did realize it, they were to take action here. Right When the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin and bring it before the tabernacle. Now, this is interesting of the meeting. And the elders, plural, right, the leaders, the overseers of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord. Then the bull shall be killed before the Lord. We see this as a represented, uh, they're representing the nation, these leaders here. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, you look at what's going on in our nation today. Things seem to be getting a little bit better with the current administration. And, you know, we have Supreme Court things going on, which we're seeing travesties happen. But at the end of the day, we know that there's other political movements and groups that are looking to take control of the house. And I don't need to get political with you. But the point is, is that we need prayer for our nation. We need this covering for our nation. We need forgiveness for our nation because of how many abortions have been, you know, been uh, done in this nation alone. The sin that wages on in this nation. We need to be praying for our nation, praying for forgiveness. God says, and I know this is in the Old Testament, it was primarily spoken to Israel. I understand it. It wasn't spoken to the modern day church as a promise. Please don't think I'm eisegeting, mere reading. But God did say that if they would humble themselves, right, and they would come before the Lord, that he would heal their land. That was a promise to Israel. But I believe my God is a God of promises. And if we would humble ourselves, he too would heal our nation. And I, begun, I believe we've seen a lot of favor just in the last couple of years because of our response to Israel. Because those who bless Israel will be blessed and those who curse Israel will be cursed. I believe because we're trying to do some things that are right, although I understand we're far from where we need to be according to the Bible. At the end of the day, there are people that are interested in right living. We need to be praying for our government officials. We were at the poll today. Today, I don't know if you know, is the day, the national day where we gather at the poll at high schools. We went right over here to Cedar Cliff. We had a bunch of the folks from the church. Some of the teens came out from the church. And we had a bunch of the teens, I don't know, 15 or so teens that gathered around the poll. We were there at 7 a.m. this morning. And we just began to pray. And it was beautiful to hear these young people praying for our president, praying for our country, praying for protection in their school, praying for God to do a revival 
that he would just give time for one more revival for these young people, for their friends to begin to confess and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I'll tell you what, that was beautiful. What a beautiful way to start anyone's morning. Every day should be a day at the pole, right? But I mean, it was beautiful. And, and, and I'll tell you, you know, the Lord's moving there. I, I have a, a, please be in prayer. I have a meeting with the, the coordinator that leads the, the Bible study, the moderator, I guess it would be, that, that allows the moderation of the Bible study that happens at Cedar Cliff. And next week, I'm going to have the opportunity to meet with him. He's coming here and we're going to sit down. I, I want to know how we as a fellowship, a mile or two away, what can we be doing to pour into that public school to get the Bible in there? so that people can hear the truth of Jesus Christ and souls will get saved. Amen? Amen? So be praying for that. God is working in our area. He's doing so much. It's amazing. So what verse was I on? 15, 14? 16, thank you. I apologize. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on their head in the, uh, of the bull before the Lord. Then the bull shall be killed before the Lord. The anointed priest shall bring some of the bull's blood in the tabernacle meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood, sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil, and it shall be put on the sum and shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall pour the remaining at the base of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle, meaning he shall take the, all the fat from it and burn it on the altar. And he shall do with the bull as he did with, I think, aren't you glad that the Lord starts now? Okay. He starts summarizing for us instead of going to, he says, yeah, what I did with the bull, he says, that's what you're going to do again. He says, he shall do with the bull as he, or he should do with the bull as he did with the sin offering. Thus he shall do it with it. So the priest shall make an atonement for them and it shall be forgiven them. Notice that, plural, that when they pray, these priests, these pastors pray for the people, that they're forgiven, right? And when the people seek repentance with a, with a right heart and humble themselves, just as God said, he will heal the nation and he'll begin with each and every one of our hearts. That's how he begins with that. Then he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it as a burnt Burn the first bull. It is a sin offering. It is a sin offering for the assembly. Now, when a ruler has sinned and done something unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord his God, and anything which he has done and is guilty, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, he shall bring his offering of the kid of the goats. Now, this is interesting. A male without blemish, and he shall lay his hands on the head of the goat and kill it at the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering, right? So we see the similar, similar thing here for rulers. We see the same thing for common uh, folks, except, you know, it's a male-only goat. Um, you know, Le Leviticus chapter 6, verses 24 to 30 teaches, you know, the rest of the animal was available for the priest. They got to actually keep the rest of the animal. It was a provision God had provided sustenance for them. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour the blood on the base of the altar of burnt offering. And he shall burn all its fat on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of the peaceful offering. So the priest shall make an atonement for him concerning his sin, and it shall be forgiven him. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally by doing something against any of the commandments of the Lord and anything which ought not to be done and is guilty, or if his sin which he has committed comes to the knowledge, his knowledge, excuse me, then he shall bring his offering a kid of the goats, a female, 
different than the male, but without blemish for his sin, which he has committed. And he shall lay his hands on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar, burnt offering, and pour all the remaining blood on the base of the altar. He shall remove all its fat as fat as fat is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering, and the priest shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. Now again, this is very important. First John chapter 1, verse 9 continues to reinforce this. We only have a few verses, and we're going to close today. But if you turn in your Bibles to First John here, chapter 1, verse 9, we'll read... It says, if we confess our sins, this is obviously speaking of Jesus Christ, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can we not see that this was all along, again, a pointer, a shadow to the atonement that Christ would make through his shed blood? It was, it was always a pointer, right? Because he made atonement for us, but a true removal of sin. If he brings a lamb as his sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish. Then he shall lay his hands on the head of the sin offering and kill it as a sin offering at the place where they kill the burnt offering. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar, the burnt offering, and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove all its fat as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. We've read about that in chapter three. Then the priest shall burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for his sins that he has committed and it shall be forgiven him. And again, I'd have you turn to Ephesians chapter one, verse seven. And it very clearly teaches us here what Jesus Christ's blood was doing. Very clear. Ephesians chapter one, verse seven. There's no way to miss this. In him, <laughs> in him, in who? In Jesus Christ, we have redemption. That's how you know that you can be that's how you know that you are saved. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can know 100% you have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And nothing can take away that redemption. Nothing can take away that imputed righteousness that has been placed in you through Jesus Christ as an act of grace. As an act of grace. It's not works based. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of your works. No, what's it say? His grace. So next time somebody asks you, fill in the blank with your name. What is the difference between the Old Testament or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant other than, of course, Jesus Christ fulfilled the Old Covenant? You can obviously talk about the perpetualness of the new covenant and the fact that it's an everlasting covenant. But even in the old covenant, sin was always covered by grace. And it was always God's grace. Hence why on the altar of incense, the blood was put on the horns that would have been on the altar, right through the, the, the tabernacle there as you were inside. There's the horns that would have come up, again, signifying the power and authority that the blood was put directly on those horns, signifying God's authority to say that Israel or the individual offer had been forgiven their sin. 
how much more through the blood of Jesus Christ that takes away the sin of the world for those that place their faith and trust in him. So, as we read, so the priest shall make an atonement for his sin and he committed all, it shall be forgiven him. Read ahead to chapter 5. We'll begin to look at some of the um, treatment. I'd encourage you to look at this. Uh, verses 1 through 13 of chapter 5. Many scholars will take this and um, add it as a continuation of the sin offering of chapter 4, right? But, you know, I think because, you know, when you look at chapter 5, chap- remember chapter 4 was dealing with sin nature, Chapter 5 is going to deal with the act of sin itself, specific sins they're going to go into, right? And we're going to cover that. Uh, but if we look at it, verses 1 through 13, um, I believe should be broken up separately, uh, but it, it's treating more of the acts of sin, I think, versus uh, to man. It's sin against man, acts of sin against man. Verses 14 all the way, really, to the close of the chapter, of verse 19, deals with the sins or what I call guilt, guilt offering, or guilt that way, in regards to holy things. In regards to holy things in the temple that way, things in the tabernacle, things of the Lord, and how there has to be something that's paid. There has to be a, um, a recompense. There has to be something that's done, right, for that. Uh, um, as he says, there's a restitution, that's the word, I'm sorry, I was blanking out on that. It's a restitution that had to be made. We don't see that anywhere else in any of the other sin offerings, only in chapter 5, and specifically only around verses 14 through uh, 19, and then because that has to deal with God, the holy things of God that way. So go ahead, read ahead, uh, chapter 5. Once we move to chapter 6 and 7, the focus will focus more towards the priest. Chapters 1 through 5 are focused more on the worshipers, you and I. And now we'll kind of turn our, our look in chapter 5. We'll finish that off, last offering. And then we'll look again at the priest's kind of viewpoint on these sacrifices. And it'll also give us some additional detail. We'll see more of Jesus in the book of Leviticus. Sound good? Let's stand and pray. All right. Father God, we, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who willingly, God, as I think of a free will offering, Lord, a willing sacrifice, your son, Jesus, alone, Lord, went to the cross. Lord, he suffered, he died so that we could be set free, so that we could have true forgiveness true right relationship, that we could, as we read in chapter 3, that we, Lord, could enter into peace, perfect peace and rest with you, God. Lord, often today I think we get so embroiled and carried up in the things of this life, Lord, that we forget that we have you in heaven that looks down upon, knows every hair on our head, and Lord, you are intimately aware of our needs, of our things we need, Lord, the protection we need, Lord, the the whispers in our hearts of love. And God, we just thank you for that, Jesus. We thank you that you first lived us. We thank you that you gave us opportunity of life each and every day. We know it's a gift of grace from you. God, help us to make the most of it for your glory, for your honor, Lord. 
We pray for travel mercies home tonight, Lord. We pray for sweet sleep and just a time with you, Lord. Give us just beautiful visions, God, of what it will be like in, with you in heaven for all of eternity. That, Lord, if you should tarry tonight and we wake up and our feet touch the ground tomorrow, Lord, that we would have our ample supply of not only energy, but grace and mercy for the day you've put before us. Then we may walk it out, that we may walk it out, Lord, in your strength, with your love. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for sanctifying us. We pray all this in your name, Jesus, and all God's people prayed. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good night. Love you all. Don't forget this Saturday starts at, I think, around 9 or 9.30. We have the Prophecy Conference. It's free. Just come on out. Um, little snacks will be provided here or there, and then we'll have a break for lunch where you all are invited to go to the, well, some of the local restaurants or establishments and have a lunch and then come back and join us. Look forward to seeing you guys Saturday at around 9-ish. God bless you. Okay.